Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. So today is uh, August 2nd, 2022. This is a podcast, episode podcast of the New Books Network. My name is Bill Domnarski, and I cover the, not the waterfront, but two areas for the New Books Network. I cover books on literary studies and also books on law. And today we have a podcast with Jeffrey Sutton, who is a judge on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a big deal, um, who's written a, an important book called Who Decides, published by Oxford University Press. This book is uh, something of, or actually a sequel to a prior book, I think it was 2018, is that when it was, Jeff? Yeah, I think so called 51 Imperfect Solutions. And these two books, Jeff is talking about the relationship between state law, state constitutions, and federal law and the federal constitution, the way all of these uh, bodies of law are interpreted. So, Jeff, why don't you, if you would, briefly tell us what you do for a living. Yeah, so my day job is uh, I'm the chief judge of the Sixth Circuit. Uh, it's a federal court of appeals. It covers the Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee. And um, it's a lot that goes into that job. But the big picture items are we sit about seven weeks of the year in Cincinnati, sit in panels of three. Uh, occasionally, the full court will hear a dispute. And, you know, my work is uh, preparing for those arguments and then writing opinions that come out of those arguments. Um, With panels of three, we each take about a third share of the cases and opinion writing assignments. So my focus um, with my federal court job is, you know, both leading the Sixth Circuit administratively and sitting on panels of three. Um, On top of that, I teach quite a bit. I teach five credits a year at Ohio State's law school here in Columbus two credits a year at Harvard and periodically at other schools and usually in the area of state con law, but every now and then it'll go off in the direction of appellate advocacy or federal constitutional law. But you had not been an academic before going to the bench, had you? Well, it depends what you call an academic. I was a seventh grade geography teacher, and I'm going (laughs) to guess you don't think that counts as an academic. I'll, I'll add to it a little bit that I was a also a high school history teacher and a soccer and baseball coach. Uh, that's all before I went to law school. I, I came from a, a family of a lot of teachers, actually. I was the first one to go to law school. And so I think, um, and I've been teaching at Ohio State in particular for over 25 years. Uh, really started doing that pretty soon after I graduated and finished clerking. So I, I obviously enjoy working with students and enjoy the teaching environment. And I I guess I feel quite lucky that in a sense, I'm having my cake and eating it too. I I really enjoy being a judge. It's a real privilege and it's allowed me to continue to teach and write. Um, So. Well, before going on the bench, you were a lawyer for the state of Ohio. Is that right? Yes. I was the solicitor general of the state of Ohio in the mid nineties for attorney general, Betty Montgomery. And, um, and that was a that was a quite a transformative job. First of all, it was a lot of fun. I got to argue my first cases in the U.S. Supreme Court and other appellate courts, including the Ohio Supreme Court, the Sixth Circuit. Um, but that was the job that really transformed my view of American law. Um, you know, it's nothing like experience to inform somebody about you know what they think really matters or what's right. And um, the thing that was striking about that job as SG um, was realizing that, you know, what I learned in law school, um, and, you know, I guess I really wouldn't say this is law school. I think this is a story we tell ourselves from seventh grade civics on that um, the key guarantee of our liberties and equality, dignity, property rights, the key guarantee is the federal constitution and the key guarantors are the federal courts, including especially 
the U.S. Supreme Court, and no case illustrates that, you know, kind of central story to American law than Brown versus Board of Education. And, you know, that, of course, is a great heroic story, and I would never um, second guess the story, but some myths have been generated by that single story. And myth one is the U.S. Supreme Court always gets it right. Myth two is that the states are always wrong. And I will say working in state government, working with the governor of Ohio, the state legislature, I found myself either saying, you know, these are pretty responsible people doing the best they can, or they're dealing with really difficult issues. And frankly, no one seems to know the answer to these issues, no state, no federal official. And the really consequential lesson for me is state SG, perhaps this shows I wasn't much of a lawyer, but I lost quite a few cases in the Ohio Supreme Court under the Ohio Constitution. In fact, I tell my students that I could teach a whole class on state constitutional law based solely on cases I lost in the Ohio Supreme Court under the Ohio Constitution. And I found myself thinking, why is no one talking about state constitutions? I mean, we teach a class called constitutional law. Uh, We learn in law school, you take a class called constitutional law. But as I came to realize, it's teaching half the story. It's just teaching the federal side of the story, the federal constitution, and the federal court's interpretation of it. And that's all well and good, but why wouldn't lawyers, why wouldn't their clients want this second avenue for, you know, dignifying individual liberty rights or property rights or equality rights when, you know, all 50 state constitutions prohibit state governments, local governments from also violating the state constitution. So the the point is, you know, you've got two shots, not one, to invalidate a state or a local law. And I frankly just found myself puzzled why no one was taking this seriously and thinking about it or teaching it. And so that's when I started teaching it at Ohio State. Before long, I started writing about it. So that SG job for the state of Ohio really affected me. I, I haven't quite gotten over it since. Yeah, I have to ask you, what do you mean by that? <laughs> um, it made me appreciate, it really informed my thinking of American constitutional law. It made me realize that when you're thinking about federal con law, you can't just isolate out the federal 14th Amendment. You want to think about the federal 14th Amendment and any protections that a given state might provide. You don't want to think about just one. You want to think about the whole thing. Um you want to appreciate as a lawyer, remember I was still a lawyer and went back to private practice. You want to think about giving your client two chances, not just one, to win a case. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we can talk about this more, but one of the really wonderful things about, I'll call it federalism, using state and federal constitutions, states and federal governments to protect rights is that it's it's quite equal opportunity. In fact, it's fundamentally neutral. Uh, this is why there's so many fair weather federalists out there. In other words, one day it looks wonderful, but the next day it's quite irritating. You know, mm-hmm. one day the state court does something, fills a gap that you think exists in the federal constitution, and you're quite happy to see the state court fill it because you happen to think that's a, a right worth protecting. But of course, the next day. <laughs> that same court or another state court might protect a right that you do not think is worth protecting. So it's fundamentally neutral. I think we've had different experiences because when I was in law school, I graduated in 83, I guess it was, at the University of Connecticut School of Law. Uh, That's what we were taught is that there were the two prongs. You had to raise, if you could, both the state and the federal constitutional claims. Um, Now, as it turned out, my constitutional law professor was a former law clerk to Justice Brennan. And uh-huh. Brennan actually in the 70s, I think it was, had written an important article about how maybe this was because he was a former state court judge. He had written an article about how lawyers should be looking to both the federal and the state constitutions. Yeah. Well, so the Brennan article is in 1977. It's a really consequential piece of the the motivation is not subtle. Justice Brennan lays it out pretty clearly in the first couple pages. He notes that uh, you know he'd been writing majority opinions in the U.S. Supreme Court for quite a while, and by the mid-70s, the composition of the court had changed, the direction of the court had changed, and he was writing quite a few more dissents. And his message was, um, 
nothing prohibits a state court judge from using their state constitution to make his dissent the law of the state of Connecticut or Ohio, for example. Um, the message and the messenger may have undermined uh, what he was doing. Um, the message, in my view, and I, you know, I don't want to blame Justice Brennan. He was bringing some light to something that a lot of people had neglected. But the message was use the federal dissents, federal debates about the meaning of the federal constitution as a resource for what a state constitution ought to mean. And, and that, that's not a great message. Um, the ideal message is look to your state constitutions for differences in text, culture, history, precedent that might explain why the state of Ohio or for that matter, the state of Connecticut might chart a different path. I think Justice Brennan, no fault to him, as a messenger, might have undermined the message as well. Um, he was known quite clearly as someone who believed in flexing um, the muscles of the federal constitution um, for certain ends, but not others. I and mean, he cared deeply about equality, liberty, the dignity of the individual, ending the death penalty, free speech. But he, you know, he wasn't a proponent of other constitutional rights. And I think for half of the judges in the state courts that perhaps were originalists, more conservative, um, believed in fixed constitutions, Justice Brennan was not the ideal messenger. Um, I might point out, um, this is really the point I was trying to make about it being neutral. In Justice Scalia's last majority opinion in the court, a case called Kansas versus Carr, he actually makes the Brennan point. His, his last opinion, he makes the point that rejecting relief for a death penalty applicant under the federal constitution and, and, and they're reviewing a case by the Kansas Supreme Court. And Scalia makes the Brennan point. He says, now listen, we're denying relief here, but nothing prohibits the state court from invoking its own constitution to prohibit this capital execution, turn it into a life sentence, or invoke some other criminal procedure right under the state constitution. And that's what I mean by the reality that it really should be federalism in general, state constitutions more specifically. It really ought to be something that everyone thinks is a useful tool for citizens and lawyers alike. Um, you know, I'd point out something else. And Brennan and Scalia are perfect illustrations of this. You can't be a Brennanite. You can't be a Scaliaite without using state courts and state constitutions. Why do I say that with such conviction? So Scalia, the originalist, says that you've got to figure out what the original 1789 constitution meant, the 1791 Bill of Rights, the 1868 14th Amendment. Well, how do you do that? Well, it turns out virtually every right in the federal constitution, it turns out virtually every structural guarantee in the federal constitution grew out of a state constitution, usually several state constitutions, often the ones written between 1776 and 1786. You can't be an originalist without looking to state constitutions and state court interpretations of those constitutions. They're the source code of the federal constitution. I, so I don't even know, all these people that are originalists, I promise you are state constitutionalists. They may not realize it, but they are. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the originalist, I'll call it conservative side for want of a better generalization. Now let's look to the living constitutionalists. Well, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Sorry. I want to ask you a question. Um, yeah. First, I want to make a point, which is when you're talking about Brennan, it's interesting because uh, Brennan might have actually in some ways had more influence as a extrajudicial writer than he did as a justice. I mean, what you're talking about, this 1977 article is an example. And in 1985 or 86, he engaged Ed Meese in a terribly significant exchange of views on originalism, where he, of course, took the expansive view, the idea that we have a living constitution. So actually, more than what's in his opinions, what he said in that essay um, really set the boundaries for the debate. Now, let me go beyond that and say, this originalism that you're talking about, whether it's tied to state constitutions or the federal constitution, how do you get past the idea that you're turning judges in their assessment of these or analyses of these uh, cases into historians? 
Because aren't you wary of doing that, given what Charles Fried says? I mean, Charles Fried is a, a, he's a gigantic figure in the law, and he says, judges are not historians. They're fooling themselves if they think they're historians. What do you say to that kind of uh, argument? Well, I would definitely say that lawyers and judges are more historians than they are policymakers, first of all, unless they're given authority over the common law in which they're asked to be policymakers. But I think I think it's a really important point, and I think it's a kind of a challenge that originalists have to come to grips with. And here's how I think of it. Um, well, the, the kind of glib point is there's actually nothing in law that's not forgive me, backward looking. Um, everything, every case is backward looking. It's about a statute from a prior time. It's about a case from a prior time. It's about prior events, and it might be about a prior constitution. So inherently, day one of law school, one is learning to look backwards, because that's just the way the law works. That's, that's point number one. So I, I, I don't want, my point is, I don't want everyone to assume lawyers know nothing about looking at history. They're constantly having to look back in time at something. Now, it's true. They're not trained historians. And trained historians have a humility about understanding the past that it's very difficult for lay people or judges to appreciate. And that's what brings in what I would say the virtues of the adversarial system. I mean, we don't, we don't invite these cases. We don't decide one day, let's figure out what the original meaning of this case, of this uh, provision in the U.S. Constitution was. We have a case that implicates it. The lawyers are trained to dispute it. Amiki, including trained historians, often come in to debate the meaning of it, including prior scholarship. And, you know, we then arbitrate who's got the better argument. Now, I must say, I find that debate, difficult though it might be, say, the meaning of a uh, 1791 guarantee, I find that a lot easier than, say, a patent case, a med-mal case that turns on the intricacies of how an accident occurred and what it did to a human being, an intense security dispute, an intense tax dispute. And the point I'm getting at is, I promise you, we have lots of areas of law that appellate judges have to referee that are much harder than disputes about the meaning of a document from 1791. But let me just add one other thing, because I think this will give you a little encouragement, at least about my perspective on originalism. Uh, it actually could haunt you. I'm not, I'll be curious how you react to it. My view is that we also have to realize we're human beings and there's a risk. This is the same risk you get with legislative history. There's a risk that the human being with his or her own worldview, when they look to the past for the answers, are more likely to have some features of the past, some charts of history resonate more with them than others because of their human frailty is having some preferences for this versus that. So my view, when you look to history to figure out the original meaning, you need a clear, clear answer. And if the history is not clear about the meaning, democracy wins. And so for me, that's how it ought to work. And I think that deals with two problems, the difficulty of doing history and the risk that the judge will, you know, subconsciously see what they want to see in the history. So I think if they can show that there's a clear, clearly articulated right, they can enforce it in 2022. And if they can't, they ought to be humble and say, this is for democracy. All right. Well, since I have you here, I, I, I can't not raise this, this issue because I just don't have a chance to ask this question of people in your position very often. Now, as you know, I wrote an a intellectual biography of Richard Posner, who unfortunately isn't on the court anymore, but he was a terribly influential uh, thinker both on and off the court. And what he says is that all of this stuff about originalism, about judges being circumscribed in their duties is nonsense that when judges hear cases, they have to just jump in, learn all that they can about the case, and apply all the tools that social science, the social sciences give the judge to resolve the case. So that's just a completely different way from the way you're looking at it, of looking at a case. How do you respond to that kind of application of pragmatism 
that Posner espoused both in his opinions and in his uh, extrajudicial writings. Yeah, well, I, I, this is perfect because there really are three schools of thought, originalism, pragmatism, so that's Posner and Breyer, and then living constitutionalism. And so I want to put the answer in the context of the last two schools because it's important. So Brennan, the living constitutionalist, it's a caricature of their school of thought to say they wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and see staring back at them their version of the Constitution. That's quite unfair. What they say is that some general terms have evolving meaning to account for shifting norms in society. Where do they get the evidence of those shifting norms? It's got to come outside their own worldview, their own moral view of the world. States, state legislatures, state constitutional amendments, state courts. It's a perfect indicator of what has shifted in America when it comes to norms. And if you doubt me on this, the, you know, the Obergefell marriage equality story illustrates this perfectly. That's where Justice Kennedy looked to see evidence of shifting norms about the meaning of marriage. Now, as to Judge Posner, and I would put Justice Breyer in the same basket, their view is when you have a hard case, don't mess it up. At least make sure what the court says works. Like whatever your interpretation is, make sure it's something that has a you know a legitimate cost-benefit analysis, makes sense in the real world as opposed to a world that's 200 years old. Once again, how do they know what works and what doesn't? I mean, another pragmatist would be Justice Brandeis. That was one of the key premises of the Brandeis view of developed law from the ground up. Now, Brandeis was talking about legislatures, and my books are talking about state courts, but I feel it's the same, it's the same model. The pragmatists should not want to unleash an experiment on 51 jurisdictions, 330 million people with no idea how it's going to turn out. That is irrational. And a Posner, I'm sure, would agree with me on this. You want to do the experiment if it's high risk, one jurisdiction at a time, because you can more quickly correct or learn it's a bad idea. And if it works, let other folks move along. So I I quite agree with that. And, you know, the other thing I would say about Judge Posner, and I, I adored the guy. Um, I wrote a review of his book, How Judges Think, and really I got to know him through it and I really enjoyed it but I think it's important because I think that's this is true for him and I it's probably true for me um it's one thing to say something as a scholar an author it's another thing to do cases as a judge and one thing that illustrates that dichotomy is you know Judge Posner and Judge Easterbrook are two of the finest judges in Court of Appeals history. I mean, they're really very intelligent people and made really significant, long-lasting contributions to American law. Now, while they were fellow travelers, professors at the University of Chicago, no one would have called them federal tra fellow travelers, say, the last 20 years in terms of judging. And that's because Easterbrook is a little bit more formal, a little bit more like Scalia, Posner a little more pragmatic, a little more like Breyer. Now, guess what? <laughs> they still voted together 90% of the time. It was very rare for the two of them to disagree. So that proves to me that, you know, there were not just one Richard Posner, there were at least two. Maybe it explains how he wrote so many, did so much. But there was Posner the scholar, Posner the judge. And as a judge, you know, he he wasn't necessarily doing whatever he thought in his academic work. Um, I think he was still pretty careful about following precedent, listening to colleagues. And, you know, if Posner and Easterbrook are voting the same way in most, you know, almost every case, that suggests um, there's a lot of shared premises about how they do their job. Well, let's not give too much uh, uh, weight to that because 90% of the cases are one-sided. It's not as though all cases really offer themselves a different interpretations. Now, actually, I did a statistical study of their voting patterns. And yes, they voted uh, uh, alike in many, many uh, cases, high percentage of the cases, but they also differed very significantly on important issues. So I don't think that, uh, well, I, I think you're exaggerating the point, but that's just my, well, but I also want to say, I don't think Posner was a, a, a different man on the bench. He put into practice what he wrote. So, um, 
he advocated tirelessly for better educated judges. And he used his opinions as a way of saying, this is what judges should be doing. They need to know statistics. They need to know mathematics. They need to know science. And you judges below, the ones we're reviewing right now, you didn't do that. And I'm going to criticize you for not doing it. So you talk a lot in your books about the selection process. I don't think he would have any dispute about the selection process, but it's what judges do once they're judges that he found uh, fault with. That the idea that they didn't continue to educate themselves is something that he would point to. Anyway, that's just my hobby horse because I spent a number of years deeply immersed into uh, uh, Dick Posner. So anyway, let's let, let's just shift because I don't want to bury the lead, as they say in journalism. Your first book, 51 Imperfect Solutions, argues what? I want to ask you that so we can then transition to what your Who Decides book, the one that we're ostensibly talking about today, uh, argues. So let's just pull back a little bit from the um, insider stuff we've been talking about uh, and talk about your books, both what the arguments are and how it is that you decided to write these books. So tell me first about 51 Imperfect Solutions, um, the book that you wrote in 2018. Yeah, so, um, you know, both books are about state constitutions and trying to um, raise the salience of uh, the role of state courts and state constitutions in American law and trying to show how they interrelate with the federal constitution and can work well together. Uh, 51 Imperfect Solutions um, focuses on individual rights. So it sets out the thesis that um, citizens have two shots, not one, when it comes to state or local laws that they don't care for, state or local criminal prosecutions that seem wrong, and makes the point that uh, state constitutions can be a very powerful tool in, um, you know, protecting liberty or equality, whatever the, the, the problem might be. Um, it then tells four stories, uh, one in criminal procedure, the development of the exclusionary rule. One is uh, school funding, uh, which is a really fascinating story because in 1973, in a case called Rodriguez, the U.S. Supreme Court put up a big red stop sign and said the 14th Amendment does not protect equality in funding between school districts within a state. And in the you know 50 years or so since, uh, you know, gosh, it's about 45 of the states have had school funding decisions, and I'd say almost three quarters of them at one point granted relief to the claimants, which is you know a pretty astonishing story about trying to deal with um, equal opportunity in one of its most important locations, public education. Um, the other stories, one deals with um, free exercise of religion, free speech, and the last one deals with the eugenics movement, which is um, just a remarkable time in American history where um, really um, all the elites kind of thought one way to deal with new challenges in society was be to involuntarily sterilize people convicted of certain crimes or those with perceived disabilities of one sort or another. And, and there too, the U.S. Supreme Court in an infamous case called Buck versus Bell permits states to do that. In fact, Holmes, Justice Holmes makes it seem like eugenics is a good idea. He says something along the lines of three generations of imbeciles is enough. One of the starkest lines in U.S. Supreme Court and regrettable lines in U.S. Supreme Court history um, the part of the story that no one knew was that it turns out state courts had been, you know, stopping these involuntary sterilizations in their tracks. So that that was the idea behind behind 51 Imperfect Solutions was to tell these stories of individual rights, talk about how the federal and state courts interreact, interrelated, and how occasionally the heroes of the stories were actually the state courts construing state constitutions, which I do fear, and you know, even Justice Brennan, I think, would, didn't acknowledge this, that there have been quite a few times in American history where federalism has done some good when it comes to liberty and equality. All right. What you've described is, uh, very succinctly, is a argument for something. What were you arguing implicitly against? Oh, I don't think I was arguing against anything. I, I think the only against is ignorance. I, I'm, I'm not for ignorance. This is Judge Posner and I are very much on the same page. Um, 
You know, there was a study about a few decades ago in which I think fewer than 50% of Americans knew their state had a constitution. Um, <laughs> when I started going down this road of our 200 law schools, just 20 of them in a given year taught state con law. Oh, So um, no one was teaching it. And so for me, the, the, the against, the thing I didn't like was the fact we weren't aware of role of state constitutions um, in American constitutional law. And I, you know, thought it was a good idea to tell the whole story, not half the story. Well, your, your second book, Who Decides, seems to have an argument against, as well as an argument for. Uh, tell us what the argument is for in Who Decides, published, is it, was it last year? Uh, yes, last fall. By the way, we apparently have something in common. Your editor there was David McBride at Oxford. Yes, he was he was the editor of my two books with Oxford. So we have something in common. So what is the argument for in who decides? Yeah, so who does who decides you could argue is something of a sequel because it takes the same concept. Look at the federal and state constitutions, but focuses on the structure side of the story. So instead of focusing just on individual rights, say free speech or, um, you know, equal protection, due process. It talks about the interrelation of the executive branch to the judicial branch to the legislative branch, and then compares and contrasts how different the state side is. And, you know, there's one theme in that book that really caught me by surprise. I did not see it coming when I started writing it, and it was just unfolded as I did more reading. The federal constitution is still roughly locked in an 18th century Republican mode which is to say slightly non-democratic mode. There have been amendments to be sure, you know, that have made it more democratic, but the reality is it's, it's very non-democratic in lots of ways. From 1776 to the present, the trend line is the same across the states. They just keep getting more and more democratic. The people wanna vote on more things. And so what you see is, for example, in the executive branch, um, they have the political executive where you can vote for a governor, an AG, a secretary of state, a superintendent of insurance. Um, they start voting for judges. 90% of state court judges are elected as opposed to the life tenured federal judges. They even allow the initiative where, you know, over a third of states can directly amend the constitution by their own vote, something you might call direct democracy. So it was really interesting, and I think is a real question for we Americans today is, well, why is it that we want our state governments to keep being more and more democratic as the federal government stays locked in a pretty non-democratic mode? It's non-democratic in ways that irritate progressives, say the Electoral College, two senators per state. It's also non-democratic in ways that sometimes annoy conservatives, judicial review, which is very non-democratic when you know they find a constitutional right. So that's that was just a really interesting point. And I'm not sure it's a for or against point, but it just made me realize how different these two systems of government have become over time. I guess the if there were an against point, it would be too reflexively thinking the answer to the who decides question is either the federal courts construing the federal constitution or the federal government in general. And, you know, once again, my idea is not be against one. My idea is to be for both. And, you know, I guess if there's one, you know, theme throughout the book, it's the Brandeis theme that, you know, federalism, for all of the times it's created problems in American history, and there certainly are quite a few, is it possible that at this stage in American history, it might help Ameliorate, ameliorate some of our differences, be a way of going forward and developing new laws, new rights, uh, resolving difficult issues of the present. And for me, it's it's an important tool in the toolbox. And, you know, it, you know, I guess if I had one way of putting it, it's that the federal government is there as a backstop. Um, but, you know, most day-to-day -day things in American government, whether locally at the city level or the state level, are going to be done by the state governments, which, of course, understand <clears throat> the problems there best because they're often local problems or problems with a local flavor. Well, you have what 
all publishers dream of having, which is a timely book. Now, it's timely because the Supreme Court just recently uh, shocked, <laughs> turned back 50 years of judicial history and overturned Roe v. Wade. How does that decision, um, I don't want to say factor in, but what does it reflect when it comes to the relationship between the states and the federal government and the relationship between that decision and say your book or your two books? Yeah, I mean, I think I think partly because of the way we teach civics education, I really think this is a citizenry point and not a lawyer point, but partly because there's so much emphasis on the federal government and the federal constitution. Um, I think I think there's some ways in which the stakes in Dobbs, that's the, the abortion case the U.S. Supreme Court just decided, there's some ways in which the stakes in Dobbs were overstated. I don't mean to diminish the case from the perspective of those who don't care for the decision, um, I, 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 the last thing I would do is say, they, say they're wrong about that. They're entitled to that perspective. And I can certainly understand someone that, that appreciates that right being very disappointed with the decision. But the key, there are a couple of key qualifications with the decision. The decision is not saying abortion is prohibited, right? It's not, it's not doing that. Um, that's number one. Number two, it's not prohibiting uh, state courts from charting their own path or state legislatures. And so Dobbs leaves state legislatures with the freedom to actually, you know, enact laws that are even more protective than Roe or Casey. It leaves state courts the opportunities to construe their constitutions, not the federal constitution, as protecting um, a right to abortion. Um, it also lets states do something that I think a few states have already put on the ballot, um, amend their constitutions to make it clear that it does have a right to choose or a right to an abortion, however you want to characterize it. I, I, I may not be right about this, but I think Vermont, New York, and California are in the process of or already have put these on the, the fall ballot um, as constitutional amendments. Um, I was surprised to learn, I didn't know this before Dobbs came out, I was surprised to learn that no state had it in their constitution. I might have expected roughly half the states to have done it. There are some state courts that have issued what you might call substantive due process decisions or right to privacy decisions protecting the right. But to date, there hasn't been a state that's put it in its constitution. So this is something states can do. And the other thing that um, is, you know, this would implicate some other federal questions, but there's also the possibility that Congress could regulate in the area. And, you know, that, you know, it could go, of course, right or left. I mean, <laughs> protecting the right, you know, not, there's nothing, to the extent Congress has the power, nothing would dictate that it goes one direction or the other, but that would implicate their Commerce Clause powers. And that would obviously be something that could come before me. So I wouldn't want to comment on that. So to me, the the key thing about Dobbs is that it, the U.S. Supreme Court has put up a big red stop sign and said the 14th Amendment doesn't cover this. And for citizens, that could be for better or worse. Everyone is entitled to their own view. But it doesn't prohibit all these other avenues for relief. And you're right. It does put, I would say, an accountability spotlight on the states, state courts, state legislatures, even state governors. And uh, as we've seen in the last month, it's not as if there hasn't been quite a bit of activity. Well, there's been a great deal of activity and not all of it uh, <laughs> has been good from my point of view, at least. And it kind of brings up the uh, elephant in the room. Uh, and I don't mean that in a Republican Party sense. The elephant in the room is that uh, there's been a history of thought that the states really shouldn't be trusted with the most important things, fundamental rights. I mean, one of the most important uh, philosophical battles was the battle over selective or total incorporation, that is to say, to make applicable to all of the states the uh, fundamental rights found in the Constitution, the federal Constitution, because history had shown that some states couldn't be trusted, that they didn't do the right thing. Um, how do you respond to that kind of argument that to let these fundamental rights um, sit at the whim of legislatures or state Supreme Courts uh, just invites um, the polarization of our politics 
to uh, rear its ugly head. How do you respond to that kind of thing? Uh, yes and no. Um, the the yes point is yes, there have been times, Jim Crow being an excellent example, in which uh, the states have let us down. Um, I worry sometimes with these debates that we use the phrase states or states' rights as abstractions to hide the reality that, of course, not states. These are American citizens making these mistakes. Um, but I would also say there's a very serious no. Um, the federal courts have let us down and the federal government has let us down. I mean, the, the, the greatest case in U.S. Supreme Court history is Brown versus Board of Education. Well, what error was it correcting? It was not correcting a state court error. It was correcting an error of the courts, Plessy versus Ferguson. The U.S. Supreme Court blessed Jim Crow uh, with incredible consequences for this country. And to say that um, only, quote, the states is, is really, I think, silly and not really appreciating what's going on. It's the American people that are responsible for their national and state courts, their national and state governments. And so to me, the way to think about it is to be wary that one is always good or one is always bad. Um, you know, I, I gave the Buck versus Bell example. Um, if we really believe that only the federal courts could figure out what rights to protect, like they were the only trustworthy entity when it came to figuring out the core fundamental rights of being an American citizen, that would have meant when the court blessed involuntary sterilizations of Carrie Buck, no state could disagree. You don't believe that. I don't believe that. No one believes that. We want the second chance. And, and what, what, what the American Constitution and federalism ultimately does, it's, it's fundamentally libertarian. It fundamentally says we care about liberty so much, we're going to give every citizen two shots to protect it. And the reason we give two shots is we know our destiny is to have governments fail us. I mean, the, one of the greatest things about the founders of our federal and state constitutions is they were very aware of human frailty, which does not change when you make somebody a judge or a president or a governor or a legislator. And mistakes will be made, and that's why you need protections in both directions. Now, on abortion, you know, I get it that we have intense feelings about this. And, you know, as a judge, I'm trying to do my best to respect both sides of that debate. Um, but I don't think it's a debate that um, is impossible at the local level. Um, and, you know, I suspect you probably agree with me in this would, when it comes to, say, other rights. I mean, I would guess you think the right to bear arms probably ought to look different in Wyoming than it does in New York City. Um, you know, the other big experiment that the, the court kind of unleashed was the dealing with intense partisan gerrymandering, which has had such pernicious consequences in American government, polarization, divisiveness. And the court in 2019, in this case called Rucho, did basically the same thing as they did in Dobbs. They just put up a big red stop sign and said, the 14th and First Amendments did not cover this. We realize it's important. We realize it's causing problems. But the states are going to have to sort this out. And while I'm not going to say a eureka a moment has occurred since 2019, no one can deny that quite a few things have happened at the state level trying to deal with this problem. There have been several significant court decisions, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, my own state, Ohio. There have been several state constitutional amendments. There have been several state legislative approaches. And for what it's worth, they're very brandeisy and they're all over the map. It's, it's a very hard problem to even minimize as opposed to completely fix. And so when you have really hard problems, Posner would agree with me, unleash lots of experimentation, lots of experiments and collect the data. <laughs> Well, are you are you saying that that the Supreme Court should not have weighed in on same-sex marriage, for instance, and that it should have been a less the state same-sex marriage, same-sex 
same-sex marriage is a story I talk about in 51 Imperfect Solutions because my whole thesis is, is illustrated by same-sex marriage. So let's remember what the true same-sex marriage story is. In 1972 or so, the U.S. Supreme Court said no. So the court at that point was a court identical experiment with new federal constitutes. Even so, they got a case from Minnesota involving the 14th Amendment and seeking marriage equality on behalf of a gay male couple from Minnesota. U.S. Supreme Court puts up a big red stop sign. Not a single member of that nine-member court, the very court, some people think we should entrust with all of our constitutional rights, not one of them willing to say the 14th Amendment protects marriage equality. So what happens when the U.S. Supreme Court says no in 1972? Well, the debate shifts to the states. There's no other place to go. I mean, if the federal government is not going to protect it, it's going to be a function of state constitutional law or state legislative law. Sure enough, experiments start in Hawaii, one step forward, two steps back. Hawaii Supreme Court recognizes the right, but the people of Hawaii amend the Constitution to overrule the decision. So that first decision does not stick. But then in 1998, the Vermont Supreme Court decision does stick. Then the most significant decision is the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Course decision um, written by Martin Marshall, which identifies the right to marriage equality under the Massachusetts Constitution. That's in 2003. You get some states rejecting that. You get some states following the same path. And by the time Justice Kennedy writes his opinion in Obergefell in 2015, what does he say in that opinion? He says, norms have shifted in American society about the meaning of this institution of marriage. And it has involved an ongoing conversation between the state and federal government, state and federal courts, we, the federal courts, and hence the identification of the right. Now, whether one agrees with Justice Kennedy's analysis or not, one can't say it turns solely on U.S. Supreme Court justices as the only guardians of our rights. Um, it was a story that involved cooperation and dialogue between the two systems, which is, in my view, exactly what should happen. I mean, that doesn't dictate what the federal court should do, but they should at least have the dialogue. That seems to me really healthy. Well, that decision seems to vindicate the Posner approach, where he looks to the social sciences to find out how Americans are living. I don't remember if the court relied on um, that social science research. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I suspect it didn't put it in there explicitly in the same way that in Brown versus Board of Education, they didn't explicitly put in what we all understood to be true, that it just cannot happen. We cannot tolerate two schools, for one for blacks and one for whites. We just cannot accept that idea. What I worry about is this idea that we end up with a checkerboard pattern in our country where in one state it's okay to do one thing and in another state they deny you that thing. And the things we're talking about are so utterly fundamental that states can't be trusted to always do the right thing. That's my worry and I think it's the worry of a lot of people who see what we might call reactionary judges imposing their personal biases, which I think is the complaint about the recent abortion case, or personal biases on the country. And actually, the thing that happened just recently with Justice Alito is an absolute disgrace to the court, where he's going around the world now spiking the ball, saying that his view of the world triumphs. That's the way I see it. I think a lot of people see it that way also. But let's not get into but a contentious I, argument. Well, Let me move to I, something I else. No, no, no. It's, it's important for me to just ask, add a few qualifications sure. there. Okay. So uh, I appreciate your view, uh, and I respect it, and I'm going to prove I respect it by responding to it. Um, so the checkerboard um, concern that we will have different rights protected in different parts of the country is a frequent concern about federalism, right? Because right. if the idea right. is 50 state experiments, it could lead to 50 state results. And is that problematic when it comes to certain fundamental rights? So the key thing to start with is the norm is difference. Like no one complains about different tax codes in different states. And I guess that would be because no one thinks there's a fundamental right to one tax code. I quite agree when you take something like free exercise of um, religion, free speech, so things that are in the federal constitution, 
We can't compromise those and have checkerboard protections. We're, we're completely on the same page. But what I can just about guarantee for anyone that will think about it for a second, concerns about checkerboard are usually just a proxy for whether you like the right. I have yet to meet anyone that takes the same view of checkerboards when it comes to abortion and gun rights. <laughs> Most people that tell me they want just one right on abortion for the whole country usually are very okay with different protections on gun rights, Wyoming versus New York City. And then I might say it can be vice versa. So I, I think we have to be a little careful with, with that point. And when it comes to right to abortion, it's invoking substantive due process, which let's be fair to the court, all of the court, all nine justices. Substantive due process does not give a lot of handholds for what to do. And if I were to make a compromise with you and your perspective on federal constitutional law, my compromise would be this. Let's preserve substantive due process if people think it's something the federal courts ought to be able to do. But before we do it, let's prove that the right we're identifying is one that really is an American norm. It really is something that is rooted in American society. And I think today, Hey, you could probably say that about marriage equality. And I think the thing that was difficult for the court and, you know, is 50 years later, the issue has not been settled. So, you know, you can look at the 50 years point in two directions. You can look at it as, wow, the right's been there for a while. How could they overturn it? I appreciate that point. But another way to think about it is the, the decision's been there for a long time and the issue, it still hasn't settled the issue. So I'm not trying to take sides, as I think you're not trying to take sides, I hope. Um, but it seems to me those are two legitimate sides. And, you know, I haven't watched Justice Alito's speech, so I'm certainly not going to comment on, on the speech. Uh, the only things in the headlines I've seen is responding, as he was responding to criticisms of him. I did not take it as spiking the ball. I took it as responding to criticisms of his opinion. But again, I haven't seen the speech, so I can't say what's in it. Um, what do you say to uh, what Charles Freed wrote last year that when he anticipated what would happen in the abortion case, that it was an act of vandalism on the part of the court to turn back 50 years of judicial history? That's a wonderful word that he uses, vandalism, because it gets right to the heart of the issue. Well, uh, we wouldn't have had the Warren Court if they had uh, not overturned dozens of precedents. And this is a lot like concerns about patchwork protections and checkerboard. One tends to think stare decisis is really important with decisions one likes. One tends not to feel so strongly about it with decisions one doesn't like. And it's the exact same thing with the, with the patchwork point. Um, it just turns on what you think about the underlying decision. Um, and, you know, like I said, the Warren Court would not have existed. Brown would not have existed uh, without overruling a decision. And to me, I, I, I think it's stare decisis is difficult. Um, but, you know, if you're trying to be neutral about it, and I, I prepared to acknowledge it's hard for everybody to be neutral about this. We don't get into stare decisis debates unless there's agreement the decision was wrong. So that's the first order of business. Um, and then, then what do you do at that point? How do you decide what's so wrong and has to be overruled? Well, to me, it's worth considering what it means to get it wrong. So that means to get it wrong in Plessy, to get it wrong in Roe, to get it wrong in the decisions overruled in the 60s. What does wrong mean? Wrong means the court added something to the constitution that's not there or they subtracted something that is. What does that really mean? That they circumvented um, Article 5, which requires three quarters of the states to approve an amendment to the Constitution. And one way to decide whether the error was harmless is whether roughly three quarters of the states now approve the decision, or whether the American people, by a supermajority, approve the decision. That is true of most Supreme Court decisions, including some that people might think are wrong. And 
<clears throat> Obergefell's a case where I don't think there are any doubt 75% of American states approve of marriage equality. You know, the question for the court is whether that's true in abortion. Who knows? Now, this reminds we'll me of out. the uh, famous we'll quip. This reminds me of the famous quip from uh, Morris Udall after he lost the 19, I think it was 76 primary. And he said, uh, the voters have spoken, the bastards. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let me get into right something back. that I'm uh, curious about, want to know about, which is you're a very fine writer. How did that come about? Well, I appreciate you saying that. I, I have to say, um, I don't know whether I'm a fine writer today. I know I was not a very good writer in college um, in my early days as a law student and law clerk, and it was a real challenge. Um, and I think the one really great piece of fortune for me is I had a college professor for whom I had a lot of respect. And because I had respect for him, I listened to him. And he told me about junior year in college his name was John Hyde. Was the, he said, Jeff, you know, you're a good guy. You work hard, but you're not a very good writer, and it's going to hold you back. And, um, and so at that point, I started looking around at the many classmates of mine who were good writers and tried to figure out why. And I, I, I figured out one problem was I wasn't sufficiently well-read. The other was that I wasn't paying attention to people knew how to write and trying to learn from them. Then I had just one really consequential blessing. I, you know, my suspicion is Justice Scalia may not be your favorite justice, but I got to say, um, working for him was utterly transformative when it came to my writing. And, and part of it was just the attitude. I mean, the, um, the energy and passion, it was just hard not to have that affect you. I mean, you know, I, I, could, I could suddenly be confused into thinking we were playing a professional sport. It was so exciting. Uh, and of course, all we were doing was writing the dry as dust judicial opinion, but he just brought so much energy to it. And by the time that year was done, you, you found yourself thinking, wow, this is so exciting. I get to write opinions or get to write briefs or eventually get to write articles and books. And boy, that is so night and day from the kind of person I was in high school and college. And so I guess I would say mentors and you, as you know, when you reach a certain, there's a certain point where you can come to enjoy it because you can enjoy the satisfaction of having written something that you think is decent, okay. And you want to go back to that well. That's a nice place to drink from. And um, so I, I really I think appreciate it's what you're what you're saying about Scalia. I, I think he's a, he's a pretty good writer. Uh, the problem I have with him is that his best writing comes in those angry dissents. And writing angry is, is relatively easy to do because it's all emotion, it's not uh, anything else. He also uh, really kind of embarrassed himself sometimes with the way he attacked his colleagues. I, I don't think there's any call for that ever, uh, but that's what he did. Um, he told me, I interviewed him once, not long after he got the job, he told me that um, he wrote all of his dissents himself, and he was the major editor on the majority opinions. Was that your experience? Yeah, he, he um, well, I mean, the key thing, he would let us do these drafts and, you know, then spin our straw into his gold. And, you know, in my case, there was maybe a the here and an uh over there that survived. He, um, he was um, ruthless uh, with us. He was ruthless with his own drafts. And he said this many times, it's all about the editing process. And he really tried to make it sing. Um, I, I, what I would say is, I don't think there are any of his opinions that don't have his voice. Um, and, you know, oh, I think you're right about that. Sometimes I think that's a draft true. With, and trying to write a draft would try to help him. You know, the, the, I mean, you said emotion that comes through in some of the dissents. I mean, it's really, I think it's really a tricky proposition. Um, I think we have this on both sides of the, you know, you know, a conservative or a liberal. The, the upside of conveying emotion is to say, is you're saying to the reader, you know, this really matters. Uh, this is not just another case. This one really, really matters. And I think he often said he was writing for law students. So that was his real audience. And I think that's partly why they, they're accessible. But when you try to say or show it really, really matters, it's often the case that emotion comes through. And when emotion comes through, it can be look like anger. And when you when the reader hears, sees anger or emotion, they start to worry, 
is it not possible the emotion and anger affected the judge's interpretation of the law? So this is the paradox for, you know, the dissent in particular that's strongly worded. And I think that's usually a good reason not to word it too strongly because it can actually undermine the goal. But I do get the point. And a lot of cases there was, you know, from his view of judging, it was fair to say this really matters. I think we're, we're at a crossroads and we ought to be really careful what we're doing here. And well, when um, it comes to uh, other judges, either current ones or from the past, which ones do you admire when they're for their writing ability? Oh, uh, you know, that's one of the great things about your job is that you have a chance to read all these uh, fine writers and their opinions. Well, we're so blessed. I mean, um, obviously, I, I love Court of Appeals judges because that's my station. So uh, I love Easterbrook and Posner. Uh, you know, they're really, really terrific. Um, you know, Justice Jackson, who came from my family's neck of the woods, I've always loved his common sense way of writing and accessible way of writing. I think the Chief and Kagan are really terrific. Um, Ju Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kagan. And the newer justices who are all falling, finding their way, I mean, I, I think we live in an era of really terrific judicial writers. Um, I think, I think we're, we're really blessed. Um, and, you know, I, I also think, you know, going in the past, you know, I think um, Frankfurter was, you know, you could argue sometimes the scholar in him came through and um, more than it needed to. But I also think he was a pretty, pretty thoughtful justice who, um, sometimes doesn't get the credit I think he deserved. Well, I think I might have mentioned in an email that I'm actually in the process of reviewing the uh, new biography of Frankfurter, which is coming out this month, published by Norton, written by Brad Snyder. And he's trying to do exactly what you're describing. He's trying to get him more attention and trying to rehabilitate his reputation. Um, the problem with Frankfurter right. is that he, he didn't write his own stuff. Um, that's the story at least some people tell is that he uses law clerks to do pretty much everything but that's another story um yes there are a lot of good judicial writers today um i had written a book i think it was 1996 about judicial writing and i think and i had covered the waterfront for that book both court of appeals district judges too and supreme court and i think it's better i think the uh, influence of law reviews has decreased somewhat so that I think Posner had a big effect, actually, on the writing style of uh, circuit judges, at least, maybe even the Supreme Court uh, opinions, where he had an, an audience in mind and he had an objective in mind, as opposed to a law review, which seems to have a, a different set of goals, a law review type opinion, I should say. Uh, so I think there are a lot of good writers, and that's a good thing. And actually, I had an interesting uh, experience. I... Um, was talking with a fellow from the Ninth Circuit. He had just gotten onto the bench, this is a few years ago, and I was having lunch with him and I was telling him about Posner's approach to opinion writing. And he said, well, I'm gonna give that a try. Because he had used his law clerks to write the first draft and he would come in as the, uh, as the editor. And he's a former Supreme Court law clerk himself, so he clearly had the skills. And so I said, well, you ought to try this. And he said, I think I will. And then he reported back a few years later and said, I did that. I still write all of my own opinions, first draft and subsequent drafts. And he said, I'm very glad that I did that because now I feel there's this intimate relationship with the case that I didn't have before. I only wish that more judges would try that. I think there's a kind of reluctance to do that. But uh, he did it. And he found it very, very uh, rewarding. So anyway. All right, I think we've come to the end of our hour. I'd like to have you stay on for a minute. I want to ask you a question or two that we didn't cover. But let me uh, wrap this up. You've been absolutely terrific. Most people in your position, I've talked with probably 50 or 60 people in your position, that is to say, Court of Appeals judges or Supreme Court justices, um, and very few of them have been as uh, willing to talk about the um, issues that they run into all the time and the way they handle your, their jobs as you have. And I really admire that about you, that you're willing to talk about that. That means that you're an equal, uh, equal part intellectual and equal part uh, judge. And that's a great thing for the court. So let me wrap this up by saying thank you very much, Jeff Sutton, Chief Judge of the Sixth thank Circuit, you. author of Who Decides, a book that should be read and purchased. 
purchased and read, um, published by Oxford University Press, 2021. Um, it's actually a, a very handsome book. Whoever did the uh, cover design did a really nice job. So I congratulate you on that. So anything you want to say in the end? Well, thank you so much, Bill. It's, it's been really pleasant to talk. Uh, it is a really interesting time in American constitutional law history. And my hope is our conversation today will help move that dialogue along. And in five years time, um, it won't be surprising to have American lawyers talk about state and federal constitutions and state and federal courts. So thank you very much for bringing attention to this essential area.